1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter 1, verse 1, and we'll read through chapter 2, verse 12. This, this text speaks about what it means to live out of Christ's redemption, which is closely related to the theme for uh, the topic for this afternoon, which is keeping and hearing the ten words of God, of God's commandments. So we'll read 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, 
since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and, and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing from Psalm 99, stanzas 3 through 6. Two verses of Exodus chapter 20, words that are very familiar to you, which of course you also heard this morning. Exodus 20 verse 1, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the text to which we'll give our attention. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, last week we looked at the reality that God takes us, broken, fallen sinners, and makes us into new people by His grace. We saw this through the example of uh, Rosaria Butterfield, and we saw how God has, has done what He did in her. He has done the same for each of us, if not in the same dramatic uh, form. By nature, we are people that would hate God and would hate each other. And some of us come from exactly that life. But whether we were born into the knowledge of God or came into the knowledge of God later in life, either way, God has been making us into new people. And that's a, a work that's still in progress, a work that began at a definite point, but still continues to, to be ongoing. And we saw that that new, life by, uh, that new life of Christians is characterized by two essential attributes. 
One, a newfound hatred and grief for sin. And two, a love for God and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. We want to keep those two essential attributes of the Christian life in mind as we make our journey into the Ten Commandments. Our inclination when we think about the law, our inclination is often to detach it from the God who gave the law, or to detach it from our love for the God who gave the law, and to start to hear it as God's condemnation of us, God standing in judgment over us. He says, you shall not do this. You shall not do that. You shall not do the next thing. And we start to feel as we hear that a sense of God's judgment, because all of those are things that we have done. And in one sense, that's, that's right. It's biblical. The New Testament teaches us that one of the reasons God gave us the law is to show our sin for what it is, to show us our failures so that we would run to Christ in whom we have salvation. And that's certainly something we will be doing in the next several weeks. But that's not the only purpose for the law. And you could even argue it's not the main purpose for the law. The Ten Commandments do drive us to Christ to find forgiveness and grace, but they were also given to us to show us how to live in that grace. And that's why the Catechism puts the law here in the third section of the Catechism, the part that has to do not with our condemnation, but with our thankfulness, so that we would recognize that the law is given for us to show us how to live in a way that shows our thankfulness to God. And that's why we're taking a week first then just to look at the preface to the law because that's the spirit in which God gave the law and the spirit in which He wants us to receive the law. And so again, it's there in Exodus 21-2, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's three simple points I want to take from that preface. Number one, These ten words come from God. God, it says, spoke all these words. Number two, these ten words come from our God. He says, I am the Lord, your God. And number three, these ten words come from our God who has delivered us from slavery. So first, we want to recognize that these ten words do come from God. Exodus 20 begins, God spoke all these words. If there are any guests in our church this afternoon and you're not a Christian and you hear these Ten Commandments, you might be tempted to say, well, why are you judging me? Who are you to say what's right and what's wrong? Well, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. God spoke all of these words. This is the Word of God. There are things in the law that do confront us that do challenge us, that demand that certain things in our lives need to change. And that will happen. I I pray that that will happen for all of you over the next several weeks. Uh, And that you will also then have the ability to hear that as that comes to us from God. When that happens, we need to know that this is the Word, not my Word, not the Elder's Word, but the Word of God. That's why Exodus 31 tells us that God wrote the Ten Commandments with His own finger. It doesn't make them any more inspired than the rest of the Bible. But God did this so that we would know that these ten words are indisputably 
from him. They're not even nuanced with the personality or character of the authors who wrote them down. These come from the very finger of God. If this is the Word of God, the God who who stretches out the universe and who measures the stars, as the Psalms say, in His hand, and who gives us our every breath and our every heartbeat and, and causes every one of the cells in our bodies to function, if this is that God's Word, then it's a Word that's worth listening to. This is not the opinions of men. It's not just one perspective on on ethics or one perspective on morality. It is the unchanging, abiding Word of God. And we need to understand then that the Ten Commandments are rooted in the very character of God. Something isn't isn't just right or wrong simply because God says so, though that's certainly a good enough reason for us to take it as right and wrong. But it's right and wrong because it's a reflection of God's own eternal, unchanging character. Right and wrong as moral categories are rooted in the character of God. And since God doesn't change, neither do right and wrong. Those are not categories that we get to stand above and define for ourselves. Circumstances might change, and our response to those circumstances, of course, will change. But, but here we're presented with an unchanging standard of right and wrong that's rooted in the very character of God Himself. And that's also why the Ten Commandments are written in stone. In that way, they're different from the rest of God's law uh, in the rest of, say, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, uh, which was either carried along by oral tradition or written on paper. And that's not to say that they're not authoritative or not inspired. Uh, all, All Scripture is inspired by God, Paul says, and profitable for teaching. And so all of God's Word has abiding relevance. But the civil laws and the ceremonial laws were written for a particular time and a particular place. God saw to it that the Ten Commandments were written in stone as a message that they will abide forever. So the Ten Commandments are written in stone. There are some things, like the the Fourth Commandment, for example, that change in how we apply them in the application of the law, but the principle and the force of the law remain in effect forever. So this is the first thing, then, we want to recognize when we read the law of God. It is the Word of God. If you're a guest in our midst and and you're thinking through this, you need to know that without God, there is no such thing as good or evil. Those categories exist because they are rooted in the character of God. It's strange that uh, one of the most common reasons that people say they don't believe in God is because of the evil that exists in the world. Maybe this is something you've thought through as well. You think if there's a God... How could He allow so much evil in this world? Well, if that's where you're at, then I want to be clear. You're right. You're right that evil exists in this world. Terrible, unspeakable evil. We saw a glimpse of that also this morning. The evil that people do to one another is terrible. It's horrifying. And it is objectively evil. It's not evil because... Society says it's evil or the government declares it to be evil. We know when we see evil, it is wrong. It is objectively forever wrong. But if when we speak of evil, aren't we also assuming that there's such a thing 
as good. That makes it different from evil. And if there's such a thing as, as good, then isn't there such a thing as a moral law that distinguishes between good and evil? A law that defines what those categories are and, and what falls into them. And if there's a moral law, then there is also a moral law giver. Good and evil don't just hang there in the balance in midair as categories that exist all in their own right. They're founded upon the moral character and the unchanging character of God. Well, scripture teaches that evil is real. In fact, it's not only real, but it's worse than we think. And Scripture teaches that it arises from rebellious, sinful human hearts. God has given us a free will that we would love Him and love one another. And we have used that free will to hate Him and to hate one another. It's true that evil in the world undoubtedly does challenge our knowledge of God. It's hard to think of a God, uh, to think of why God allows the evil that exists to exist. But the evil that is there is not evidence of His absence, but evidence of our depravity, our fallenness. Evidence of the fact that we are, each of us, under God's judgment apart from His grace. God is the only source of all good, and God is unstained by all evil. We saw that also this morning. What this also means is that the the law then is also reflective of the fabric of the universe that God Himself created. God doesn't just forbid murder and adultery because He's arbitrary and wants to take away our fun. God forbids those things because they are destructive and they are objectively wrong within the world that God has created. That's the first thing we want to take away then. These are the words of God. Secondly, these ten words come from our God. That's right there in the preface of the the law again. He says, I am the Lord, your God. Well, brothers and sisters, you need to hear that and hear it well. Maybe you've heard the law a hundred times or even the preface of the law a hundred times and yet you still hear the law as coming from a God who does not know you, who does not love you, and who stands over you in judgment. That is not the spirit of the law that God gave. He says it very clearly, I am the Lord, your, your God. The Ten Commandments are a word from God to His own precious covenant people. A few chapters earlier in Exodus chapter 6, God promised the people, He says in in Exodus 6 verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. That's the context for the law. And if you're a member of the church, and and therefore a member of God's people, that's the spirit in which God gives you His law. The difference here is between an impersonal lawgiver and a father. An impersonal lawgiver just hands down laws from above and, and warns you about punishment that comes when you disobey them. Here in Canada, we call that the government. Nobody's excited to hear the latest set of laws that come from the government and to receive the next big stack of, of codes. Nobody gets excited about that. But when God, our Father, gives us the law, and we need to know that this is coming from our Father who loves us and, the, and our Father who wants what is best for us. 
He really is our Father. If we belong to Christ, God the Father loves us as much as He loves His own precious eternal Son. So what the Lord Jesus said in, in His prayer in John 17, He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know You, I know You, and these know that You have sent Me. I made them to know Your name. I will continue to make it known. And He says this, So that the love with which You have loved Me may be in them and I in them. If you're in Christ, God loves you as His own child, as much as He loves His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. So when you hear the Ten Commandments, hear them as coming from your Father. When God gives the Ten Commandments, He's he's calling His children for a family meeting. Maybe some of you have had these meetings at home where Dad says, okay kids, it's time for a family meeting. We've got things we need to talk about. And maybe in that meeting, dad might even have some correction to offer. But if your dad loves you, and your dad cares for you, and maybe invests in you, then you receive those commandments not from an impersonal lawgiver who stands over you in judgment, but as a father who wants what's best for you. When God gives the Ten Commandments, He's calling His children for a family meeting to offer correction, but for their good. It's because He cares about them. That's true. The Ten Commandments do also show us our sin, which is hard. It's not an easy family meeting. And it should cause us to run again to Christ. Hopefully, uh, we experience that again over the next several weeks. But if you're in Christ, you need to know God does not give you the commandments simply so that you would fear and, and feel that great sense of guilt and live with that sense of guilt. But instead, He gives it so that after having gone to Christ to deal with your sin, you would know how to live in the joy and fellowship of your Father. And you can even then rejoice in the Ten Commandments. How many of you rejoice in the Ten Commandments? That's the spirit in which they were given. And you see that throughout Scripture. You think of Psalm 119, how often the psalmist says, I rejoice in your law. You see this overflowing spirit of of gratitude and thanksgiving for having God's law. In your personal and, and your family devotions, how do you read the law of God? How do you respond to the law, and not just the Ten Commandments, but the, the, the multitude of instructions and exhortations that we receive from God. It is appropriate to respond with confession where there is sin that needs to be confessed, but we should also respond with thanksgiving that our God cares enough to step into our lives to correct us where we need correction and to lead us in the way that we should go. That is God's gift. Our our prayer to Him should be, thank you for showing us what you love so that we may live it as well. And so in the next weeks as we hear the Ten Commandments and and dig deep, uh, which we will do, we're going to dig deep into all of their implications and their applications, their outworkings in our lives, we will certainly be confronted and, and we will probably, hopefully, even be uncomfortable if we're listening and reflecting well The law does that to us every time. And there are going to be areas in our lives that we'll need to change. But we should never, ever stop hearing these as words that come from our Father who cares about us and wants what is best for us. Our third point. These ten words come from our God who has delivered us from slavery. 
That's the context for this law, and that's there in verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The story is familiar to most, probably all of us. Uh, Jacob and his 12 sons ended up in Egypt in order to avoid starving in the land in which they were living. And, And their descendants lived there in Egypt for the next several hundred years. And as they multiplied and became powerful there, the Egyptians became suspicious and afraid of them and enslaved them and oppressed them. What we don't often realize in that whole story is that the slavery was not only physical, but also spiritual. Deuteronomy talks about the foreign gods that they had in them, uh, um, among them when they were living in Egypt, and that some of them even tried to bring out of the land of Egypt and take with them to Canaan. So they had not only been physically enslaved to the Egyptians, but they were also spiritually estranged from God and enslaved to the gods of that land. They started making sacrifices to them. They lived in fear of those gods. Many African converts to Christianity talk about uh, that primitive fear of of spiritual forces and, and darkness. And the Israelites would have certainly experienced this. This was a culture that threw its children into the Nile. Uh, they were not uh, these were not loving, caring, joyful gods. And it's a fear that dominates a person's mind and binds them into what is really spiritual slavery, domination uh, over their souls. And so on top of the physical bondage that the Israelites endured, there was also a spiritual bondage and an estrangement from God. And and as the lives of, of the Israelites became darker and darker and heavier, they were not only physically enslaved, but also spiritually taken captive. Listen to how Exodus 2 describes what took place during that time. It says, uh, verse 23, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and it says God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And listen to this, it's a very short sentence, but it finishes that paragraph. It says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That's it, that's all it says. God saw and God knew. It's that that Hebrew word to know which is rich with, with meaning that has to do with acquaintance and understanding and sympathy. God understood their pain when they cried out to Him. God sympathized with their suffering. And like a father with his children, he had compassion on them. And so then begins the story of Moses, how God raised Moses up to to deliver them. Well, that's the context for the law of God. And brothers and sisters, you need to know that, that slavery and bondage is a reality that every individual faces who does not know God. The Apostle Paul says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those which by nature are not gods. In other words, if we're not ruled by God, we will be ruled by something else, and it will be something else that is not God, that cannot deliver on its promises. We were made, we were created to live with God, to know God, to love Him, and to live with Him. And we will either live in fellowship and joy with Him, joyfully ruled by Him, or we will live in bondage 
to something else, whether it's pleasure, security, fear, the approval of others, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, something that rules and dominates our life that does not have the power that only God has to deliver on its promises. We read from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and Peter says it this way. He says, know, this is verse 18, know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, uh, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We were ransomed from futile ways. He says it in in verse uh, 14. Let me find that again. 1 Peter 1, verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It's a passion, a zeal for that which we do not even understand. It's running after what we do not even know. It's a life that's in disobedience to the commandments of God. That's a life that's bound up in futility. Chasing after the wind, that's how Ecclesiastes describes those who do not live according to the law of God. Hungering after that which cannot ever satisfy. And what it amounts to is spiritual slavery. After all, what else do you call it when you work for something or someone endless hours without ever being paid? It's, it's slavery. And Peter says, that's what you were ransomed from by the blood of Christ. We've been taken from those old, futile, empty ways, inherited from our forefathers, and been brought into fellowship with God where there is life and where the reward is immensely greater even than, than the service that we would render. And what Peter's point is, is he says that's why you want to, he says you should, you should have fear, but not fear, he says conduct your, your entire time in the exile with fear. But it isn't fear of God. It's fear of falling back into slavery. When we read the law of God, there should be a holy sense of fear. Not fear that God would condemn us, but fear that we would ever fall back into uh, that slavery. So Peter says in chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Sin is not only a violation of the unchanging character of God, it's also destructive to our very souls. And so with Israel, slavery and bondage was physical, and uh, was not only physical, but was also spiritual. And when God gave the law, He wanted us to know then that it's coming from Himself, not only from God, not only from our God who loves us, but also from our God who has just delivered us so that we would never fall back into that same slavery. If you belong to Christ, you know that you're redeemed, as Scripture tells us, from the power of sin. Sin has power. It's something we should be afraid of. You've been set free from a life of slavery to that power. You've been made to know God to li- and, and to live with Him by His power instead. If you are in Christ, sin has no power over you because it has no claim over you. You've been set free. And so the question we want to ask then is, what does that freedom look like? Well, it looks like the Ten Commandments. That's when 
God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments. You've been delivered. You've been set free. Now here's how to live as a free people. The Ten Commandments are the word of the delivering God to His freed people, showing them what it's like to live as a people that have been set free. The first commandment is, have no other gods but me. In other words, don't become enslaved again to gods that cannot save you. The second commandment, don't make any graven images and worship them. It's a perennial temptation to make an image of God and that image very quickly captivates our souls and causes us to fall back into slavery. That's a temptation that's existed throughout the ages. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day, the day of rest. Don't get enslaved to your work. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. In other words, do not become enslaved to envy, to lust, to greed. We've been set free in order to live as a free people. And the Ten Commandments are the words from our God who set us free in Christ, showing us how to now live free. And here's the amazing thing. If you belong to Christ, then Christ is also committed to you such that He sends His Spirit to enable you to actually live that free life. You see, many of us, when we hear the Ten Commandments, even though we know that that they're there to show us what freedom looks like, yet we still think, yeah, but I'm not ever going to enjoy that freedom because I can't keep these commandments. Our flesh and mind and our emotions are so weak that it seems impossible to really live the kind of life that the Ten Commandments set out for us. But Christ, who's committed to us, sends His Spirit into our hearts to make us able, truly, truly able, to live in that freedom. So brothers and sisters, when you hear the law of God over the next ten weeks, hear it as the word from God, the unchanging, perfect, moral standard rooted in the character of God. Hear it as the word from your God, the God who loves you, who sent Christ to deliver you. And hear it from the God who has delivered you from slavery and bondage to sin and to every other God and every other power, and as He has promised to do for all of those who belong to Christ. Yes, your growth your growth over the next weeks, it does take time. It does take working through the Ten Commandments. But the Holy Spirit also promises to work on us during those next weeks. He gives us the strength that we're going to need in order to keep growing in holiness. And more and more, as we do so, we discover that God is making us more and more into His perfect holy image. And there is no greater delight, no greater pleasure than that. Amen.